Well, good morning, New Life. Good morning, good to see everybody. So, question. Who likes it when somebody says, do it because I said so? Anybody like that line, do it because I said so? Maybe it's a boss at work, and you're like, why do we have to do it this way? Standard operating procedure. It seems like it would be much better, more efficient we did it this way. And they say, do it because I said so. They don't offer any explanation. Maybe, maybe you're a child and your parents, right, they're like, do it because I said so. And you say, why? And they say, because uh, I'm your parent, because I said so. I imagine we don't like it, right? We want an explanation. In fact, if you take a, a parenting class, oftentimes you are told as a parent, you should explain to your young kids why you want them to do a certain thing or why they shouldn't do something. You're, you're taught to explain, like, why they shouldn't jump on their beds. Like to a four-year-old, it's like doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm saving my parents money. They don't even have to buy a trampoline. Like this is a, it's like designed to be a trampoline. It's soft, it's springy. Like, why wouldn't I jump on it? And then you're told to explain, you know, explain because it's dangerous. You could jump off the bed and hit your head on the dresser, and that would not be good. And we want your mattress to last a long time. Okay, right? You're taught to explain. This is why you don't play in the street. Even though it's a wide open space, you can run to your heart content. Okay, the cars might not see you and hit you, and that would not be good. Right? This is why we don't run around with scissors in our hands, puncture wounds. Okay? It's not good. You're taught to explain that. But sometimes, right, sometimes we don't get the explanation. Sometimes it's just do it because... I said so, and if you've ever been in like combat or you're an emergency responder or a fireman EMT, like sometimes you just got to follow orders. You don't have time to get the explanation. You just got life and death. Okay, I got to do it. They said this way. I'm going to go this way. Even though I feel like I should go this way, I'm going to go this way. Just because they said so. Just because they said so. And sometimes that's what's best. I know when I was in high school, the youth minister at my church, a guy named Mike Bowers, he was an older guy. We looked up to him, he was a wise guy, always loved teaching, learning about Jesus from him. But one day during student ministry, he didn't teach us a lesson about Jesus. It was weird. He started talking about money and personal finances. And we're like, this is weird. I have no idea what you're talking about. And he started encouraging us. So this is shortly after 2001, the economic recession. And so he's like, this is a perfect time for you guys to invest in the stock market. And we're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like, we're 17 years old. Like, why would we put away money in the stock market when we're, like, retirement? Like, that's, like, 50 years in the future. Like, well, we'll figure that out when we're 60. Okay, I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, he's like, no, guys, it would be better if you start early. It's better if you start early. And he started giving us equations and talking about it, and this is how you do it. All these explanations. But did it make sense? We're like, so you're saying we're, we're supposed to take the $200 that we make, you know, from our taco job, and, and we've got bills to pay. We got bills to pay, Mike. Like we got college to save for. We got movie tickets to buy. We got concerts we got to go to. And you're saying it'd actually be better if we just took that $200 and put it in the stock market, this mysterious stock market, and just let it sit there, not touch it, so we can't enjoy it. He's like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. So I did not do it. And I regret that. I regret that, okay? I, I'll admit, I regret that. Because I'm like, now I'm thinking, man, if only I would have done that. That $200 when I was 17 years old, today it would be $1,500. I'd done nothing other than let it sit there, let it grow. That $1,500, 30 years from now, would be $22,000. Just sitting in there. Just sitting there. You know, it kind of reminds me of this phrase, I wish I knew then what I know now. I wish I knew then what I know now. You ever thought that? 
right? You think about the decisions that you made. You're like, I wouldn't have maybe been in a relationship with that person, right? I wouldn't have got that job. I wouldn't have bought that boat. I wouldn't have bought that house. Or maybe I would have bought that house at that time. Man, I wish I knew then what I know now. I think there's only two ways for us not to have those regrets. The first way is just to stop learning. Just don't learn anything for the rest of your life. Just don't learn anything for the rest of your life, and you don't have to worry about thinking about, I wish I knew then what I know now, because you don't know anything. Okay, just stop learning. Or a better solution, okay, a better solution is to just obey God, the God who knows everything. Just follow his commands, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when you don't have all the explanations, because there are a lot of commands in Scripture where God says, do it because I said so. Just do it because I said so, because I'm your heavenly Father. I know what's best for you. I want what is best for you. That's what we're going to talk about today. How do we obey God even when we don't understand? Even when we don't understand? Because there are, there's a difference between obeying God because we understand his logic and obeying God just because we trust him. Just because we trust him. And that's what I want to talk about today. How do we do that? How do we obey God even when it doesn't make sense just because we trust him? To help us get into a position, a posture to be able to hear from him this morning, let's pray and ask God to speak to us today. Heavenly Father, God, as we open up your word, as we approach you, we just ask that you would open up our eyes, open up our ears, open up our hearts to hear the message that you want us to hear. Challenge us. Encourage us. Help us take another step of obedience closer to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so how do we obey God even when it doesn't make sense? Even when it doesn't make sense. Here's the first thing we need to understand. We need to understand that God has a reason for all of his commands. He has a reason for all of his commands even when we don't know it. 1 John 5, 3 says this, For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. Yes, his commands are not a burden. They're, they're, they're not just given to us to kind of ruin our fun. He's not giving us, you know, commands just to see, okay, okay, I don't know, let's, let's just see if they obey. No, he's got a reason for our commands. They're for our good that help us grow in our love for God and to flourish in this world that he has created and he has designed. And I think that's why all throughout the Bible we see God commanding people to do things that doesn't really make sense. Right, like, like when God told Abram, hey, I want you to take this son that you've been waiting for for 100 years. This son of promise. This son that you believe is going to become the, the father of a great nation. He's going to give you offspring. Your name's going to be famous because of this son. He said, I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to kill him. Didn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense, but oh, Abraham trusted and he obeyed. And God built his faith and God worked in a powerful way through that story. And Moses, hey, Moses, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to use you in Egypt to perform miracles, but what do I want you to do? I want you to throw your staff down on the ground. Okay, he throws his staff down on the ground. It becomes a snake. That's pretty cool. Yeah, okay, great. Now I want you to go pick it up. You want me to what? Yeah, Moses, I want you to go pick up that snake. Okay, and he picks it up and then becomes a staff again. It's like, wow, okay, God, that was crazy. Didn't make any sense, but I see. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you. You know, Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt. And then they, they go to the promised land. And God says, hey, 
that's yours. Go and take it. And they're like, I think you led us to the wrong land, God. Like, there are people that live in there. The, the, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and like, they aren't going to roll over and play dead, God. Like, do you see who's in there? God, it's like Game of Thrones over there. Like, I, I've never seen it, but okay, I've heard it's bad. Like, I've heard it's bad. And they're like, those are some bad people over there, God. They got like the big old swords, like as big as my legs. And it's like, they're going to they're gonna want to fight. And we've been slaves for the last 400 years. Like, we don't got any weapons. So like, how is this going to work, God? And so they didn't trust God. They didn't obey, right? And God said, all right, then wander in the desert for 40 years. And they're thinking, I wish I knew then what I know now, right? Okay, God, you will provide. But they don't get in. They don't get in. But then their children, right, they grow up and they're ready to take the promised land. And so they go, they walk through the Jordan River. And all of a sudden now here's their first step of faith or test of faith. They see the city of Jericho that God says, all right, go take it. Go take it. And like, but how are we going to do that? Like it, the Jericho, is, it's, it's walls. It's got big walls and everyone's inside of it. And we're supposed to get in there and, and kick them out. Like, how are we supposed to do that, God? There's no way we can get inside. And God says, don't worry, I got a plan. Guys, I've got a plan, okay? Here's the plan. God goes to Joshua and gives him the battle plan. Joshua chapter 6, starting in verse 2, says this. The Lord said to Joshua, look, I have handed Jericho its kings and its best soldiers over to you. So march around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. All right, you're going to get some exercise here. Here we go. Laps around the city. Verse 4, have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the ram's horns. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the troops give a mighty shout. Then the city wall will collapse and the troops will advance, each man straight ahead. How about that for the battle plan, right? That's a great, great battle strategy, right? Can you just imagine how the debrief went over with, general, with Joshua's generals, commanding officers? All right, Joshua, what's the, what's the battle plan? What's the battle plan? What's the battle plan? I've got the battle plan. Here's the battle plan. Have you ever heard of the Macy's Day Parade? It's like, no, you haven't. Okay, but, but thousands of years from now, thousands of years from now, there's going to be these things called parades. They're going to have like marching bands. There's going to be people making all this noise. It's going to be great. And it's like, that's what we're going to do. Okay, we're just going to march around the city, be sitting ducks. And yeah, we're just going to march around the city one day for six days. And the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. And then, you know, make a loud noise. And the walls are just going to come down. Joshua, that doesn't make any sense. Okay, I think you've been in the sun for a little bit too long. Let's rethink this game plan. It's like, ah, it didn't make any sense. But they obeyed. They obeyed and they did it. Verse 14 says, early on the seventh day, they started at dawn and marched around the city seven times in the same way. Just they had done six days previously, one time. After the seventh time, the priest blew the ram's horns and Joshua said to the troops, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the troops shouted and the ram's horn sounded. When they heard the blast of the ram's horn, the troops gave a great shout and the walls collapsed. The troops advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. They captured the city. And it's like, God doesn't say, like, this is how it happened. He doesn't give us any explanation as to how the walls fell down. 
Like, did, it was just simultaneously like an earthquake. There were fault lines in the area. So did God know, okay, at this time there's going to be an earthquake. And so marched around the city seven times. And okay, about, about the seventh time, okay, there's going to be an earthquake. And the walls just fall down because of that. Like, we don't know. Was there a big gust of wind? Was there an angel that came? Was someone inside with TNT? Like, we don't know. We just don't know. God doesn't give us that explanation. All we know is that they obeyed this crazy command. And God blessed them. And God blessed them. And see, when we trust God and we obey his commands, even when he doesn't make sense, we live underneath his blessing. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says, Just as you don't know the path of the wind or how bones develop in the womb of a pregnant woman. It's like, yeah, I don't understand that. So also, you don't know the work of God who makes everything. Yeah, who makes everything. Here's one command that doesn't always make sense to us, but God commands us to do it, and that is to take a Sabbath rest. Now, I, I get it like today, a lot of us understand the benefits of resting, right? Technology, medicine has shown like we need to rest. If you work out, you need a rest day to help those muscles actually build back up because you've been tearing them down mentally, emotionally. We understand the benefits of resting. But when God told his Israel, when the Israelites to rest, it didn't make any sense. First century, Seneca, a guy, Greek philosopher, he looked at the Jewish people and he says, how crazy are these people? He says, it doesn't make any sense, this whole Sabbath thing. He says, they are crazy. He says, the Jewish people waste a seventh of their life in inactivity. That's how he put it. They waste a seventh of their life in inactivity, taking a day off work. Right? And in a day and age where there wasn't refrigeration, people didn't have bank accounts, you lived day to day, not just paycheck to paycheck, but day to day. The whole idea of trusting God to provide for you on your day of rest, that was, that was pretty crazy. And then Jesus shows up and says, hey guys, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one that the Sabbath has pointed to. He says, so don't be legalistic about it. Don't, don't think you got to have like a 24-hour period where you don't do anything. He says, take time to rest in your week to remind yourself that I am your salvation, that I am the one that gives you true rest. Because the thing that oftentimes keeps us from resting is the fact that a lot of us don't feel like we're good enough. A lot of us have this voice in the back of our head that says, you need to prove yourself. You need to justify your own existence. And so oftentimes we get to the weekend and we know we should rest. We also know there's that work email that we need to answer in order to prove to our boss that we're good enough and we got what it takes. We try to justify our existence through our accomplishments, through getting a, a better degree, through getting that promotion. And if we don't, well, we don't feel like we're valuable, right? Because we start wrapping up our identity in our, our work and it prevents us from resting. And so Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, it says, if you're wrapping your identity in your work and you become a slave to your work, it says, come to me and allow my identity, my work on the cross to be the thing that gives you purpose and meaning and worth and value. And if we don't, if we, if we can't unhitch our identity from our work, we'll never rest and we'll end up worshiping other things in God's places. David Foster Wallace was a trans, kind of a modern-day transcendentalist author. Kind of, kind of along the lines of Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Walder Emerson, if you remember those guys from English class. He, he would write all these short stories and all of these several books that 
modern day English classes would sit around and kind of book clubs would wonder, kind of contemplate, what is this guy even talking about? He's one of those really deep thinkers. He wasn't a believer in God. But in 2005, he was asked to give the commencement address at Kenyon College, which is a liberal arts school in Ohio. And as he's, as he's preparing these young graduates to go, and go into the, the real world, he gave them a commencement address where he is very lucid, very clear, doesn't, doesn't mince his words about what they need to expect in adult life. This is what he says. He says, students, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, he says, there is no such thing as atheism. He says, there's no such thing as not worshiping. He says, everybody worships. The only choice is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, like Jesus or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan mother, God, mother goddess or some, you know, the four noble truths, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. It says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. He says, you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. He says, worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. He says, worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He says, the most insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. He says, they're just our default setting. What is this atheist saying? He is saying, you've been creating the image of God. We've been creating the image of God. And there's a, a, a vacuum in our heart that needs to be filled with God. And if we don't fill it with God, we're going to worship other things to satisfy that deep longing in our souls to prove that we are good enough. To prove that we're valuable to justify our existence. And oftentimes we do that through work. That's why we keep working and we don't. Sabbath. And so I would encourage you. Be disciplined about having a day where you rest, but start that day off with worship. Say, God, this is the day that I unhitch my identity from what I do the rest of the days of the week. And I just remember that you are the one where my identity is found. You are the one that makes me worthy, not because of anything I've done, but because of what your son Jesus has done for me on the cross. And you remind yourselves of the words of another David. Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul, my soul thirsts for God. It's for the living God. You see, if we don't fill our hearts deeply and daily with God's love, we're going to run to other things, oftentimes work, to fill us up. But we need to fill our hearts and our souls with the living bread, the bread of life, or else we're going to be hungry. You know, the first time the Israelites had to practice Sabbath, it was when they were wandering in the desert on their way to the promised land. And God showed them, hey, the Sabbath is all about trusting that I am your provider, that I am the one that gives you true life. And so he provides them manna. But he says, hey, make sure you just collect just enough for what you need today. Don't overwork. Just trust that I'm going to provide for what you need tomorrow. He says, because if you collect too much, you know what's going to happen to the leftovers? They're going to spoil. It's going to rot. It's going to collect maggots. You're going to have a mess on your hand is what he's saying. And those who collected just enough were fine. Those who collected more, man, 
They were wishing they didn't. But then he said, hey, on the sixth day, you know what you need to do? You need to collect twice as much because I'm not going to provide for you on the Sabbath. I don't want you to work on that day. I want you to worship me. But you need to collect twice as much and save some for tomorrow, which didn't make any sense. What are you talking about, God? Every other day it's going to spoil. What's the difference between Thursday night and Friday night? How's it going to spoil on, on Thursday night but not Friday night? He says, you've got to trust me. Even though it doesn't make sense, my presence, my blessing is going to be the difference. And those who trusted God and obeyed his commands had enough and were satisfied. Those who didn't had a mess on their hands. Here's another command that doesn't make sense. But God will honor if you trust him and if you obey him. And that's to put God first in your finances. Put him first in your finances. In the Old Testament, you were taught to give your first fruits to God. You know, harvest time, you would come and you would, okay, all right, here's the first of our produce. He said, give it to God. Like, but what if there's a storm, right? What if there's a, a famine later on the harvest? Like, I don't want to have anything. Well, you just got to trust me. Give your first fruits and give 10% beyond that, even tithes and offerings or offerings beyond that. It's like, how does that make any sense? You sit down with your financial advisor and you tell them, hey, I'm giving 10% to my church. And they're going to say, that doesn't sound very smart. But you say, what well, I trust God. I'm just going to see how he provides. Malachi 3.10 says, bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. It's not often that God tell, calls us to test him. And yet in this instance, he says, test me. See if, see if I will not provide for you. It doesn't guarantee, okay, you give and all of a sudden you're going to reap material blessings. He never promises that. But spiritually, you will be blessed. Some ways it's just because you have more contentment. That's certainly my testimony, even though I have seen him provide in ways that I was not expecting. What I've learned is that when I take my grip, the death grip that I have on my stuff, my money, my possessions, and I learn to be more generous, I'm able to be more content. All of a sudden I realize this stuff doesn't make me happy. I don't need any of this stuff. I have everything that I need in Jesus. But I only learned that when I started giving things over to God. You know, Haggai, the book of Haggai was written to Israelites when they were coming back from captivity in Babylon. And they start, you know, building their houses and they got their dream houses now. But God says, dude, you got houses, but my house is falling apart. He says, build the temple. He says, give to me. He tells them this, Haggai 1.6. He says, you have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them into purses with holes in it. He says, that's the consequence of not being generous. You'll never have enough. Right? Until you learn to be generous, you're always going to struggle with discontentment. Someone's always going to have more than you, and you will never feel rich. You want to feel rich? Start giving to God and want less. That's the only way to do it. Want less, and you'll have everything you need. And you realize, God, thank you for helping me be content. Start giving. Put him first in your finances, and he will bless you. He will bless you, even though it doesn't always make sense. It kind of reminds me of the movie The Karate Kid. Anybody ever seen the movie The Karate Kid? Right, there's this young man, Daniel, who wants to learn karate, and so he goes to the, the, the karate master, Mr. Miyago, and says, hey, would you teach me to be a karate master? 
He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll teach you. I'll teach you. Okay, what do you want me to do? Wax my car. Right? That's what I want you to do. I want you to wax my car. <laughs> what? Yeah, wax my car. So he waxes his car. And then he's like, what else do you want me to do? You know, paint, paint the fence. Paint the fence. He's painting the fence. And what else? Paint the house. Paint the house. Buff the floor. And then one day, Mr. Miyagi, he comes home from a fishing trip. And Daniel's like, where have you been? And he's like, I was fishing. He's like, I would have enjoyed an invitation. I would have liked to go. But no, I'm slaving away from you. Waxing the car. Painting the fence. Buffing the floor. When are you going to teach me karate? He says, Daniel, wax the car. Show me wax the car. Okay. Show me buff the floor. Show me paint the fence. All of a sudden, Mr. Miyagi goes in for the kill. And all of a sudden, he deflects that punch. Deflects the kick. All of a sudden, Daniel started realizing all these chores, all the waxing, all the painting was building the muscle memory and the dexterity that he needed to be a ninja, to be a karate master. Mr. Miyagi, he, he had a purpose for every single thing that he asked him to do. Same thing is true with God. God has a reason for all of the, his commands. Even when it doesn't make sense, here's another one. Especially doesn't make sense in our day and age that God wants us to honor him with our sexuality. With our sexuality. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says this. That marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled. Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. In our world, in our world, we hear that sex is purely physical and transactional. That's what a lot of people in our culture want us to believe. That it's not spiritual, it's not emotional, it's just physical and transactional. So it doesn't matter how you express your sexual desires. If it feels good, do it. It's fine because it's only physical and it's only transactional. So sleep with whoever you want to, watch pornography, be unfaithful, doesn't matter. And yet God says, I have created sex to be enjoyed within the confines of a committed marriage relationship. Jesus said in Matthew 19, that in the beginning, God created the male and female. He says, what God has brought together, let man not separate. Let man not separate. I know it's tempting. It's tempting sometimes to think, okay, God, I'm unhappy in my marriage. And so the solution is divorce. That's what the world will sometimes tell us. That's what our hearts and our minds will tell us. But God's word says, stick with it. Work on it. Go to counseling. Do what you need to do to be faithful to your spouse, to fulfill your marriage vows until death do you part. It says marriage should be held in honor by all. So even for single people like me who maybe never, ever get married, that applies to me. It applies to me and how I pursue Jesus in my purity. doesn't mean, okay, I'm never going to get married so I can just do whatever. No, Sean, one day you will have a wedding day when Jesus returns and we are wedded to our groom Jesus and so all of us are waiting for a marriage day whether we get married in this life or not and God says honor me with your sexuality it doesn't matter what the world says it doesn't matter what you feel inside it says remain pure for your spouse whether that be Jesus or somebody else here's another thing that oftentimes doesn't make sense but God tells us to do he commands us to forgive. He commands us to forgive. To forgive those who have hurt us. Right? Everything inside of us says, no, don't forgive. Don't let go. Hold on to that grudge. 
Be resentful. They hurt you. Make them hurt and pay just as much as they hurt you. But Jesus said in Luke 6, 37, Hey, forgive and you will be forgiven. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Romans chapter 12, 19 says, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. And so when you're driving down 66 and somebody cuts you off in traffic, right, and you want to do the same thing right back to them, forgive, okay, forgive. Be like, okay, I've been forgiven. I've probably done that before. I've, okay, just move on. Don't hold it against them. Recently on Twitter, a wife complained and said, um, so recently my husband really ticked me off. So I was angry. So she, she admitted that she took a cup of water and then poured it at the base of the dishwasher, waited for her husband to come home and said, honey, the dishwasher's leaking. Can you figure out what's wrong? And then she said for a couple hours, she just delighted in the fact that her husband was frustrated and couldn't figure out what was wrong. And right, it's so tempting. It is so tempting when someone hurts us to hurt them right back. That feels good, right? Feels good. And yet Jesus says, no, that won't, long, that won't lead to long-term peace and happiness. Colossians 3.13 says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. Lewis Smedes puts it this way. He says, to forgive, to forgive is to set the prisoner free. And then to realize that that prisoner was you. Yeah, as you come out of that cage of bitterness, out of that cage of resentment that's, that's, that's tempting you to live in that darkness, to be enslaved by, by Satan and his evil schemes, Jesus says, forgive, because I've forgiven you. you know, maybe, maybe your next step today is to actually go to somebody and say, I'm sorry. right? And your pride inside of you says, don't admit it. Don't admit that you were wrong. Hold on to it. Pretend it never happened. And just you know, forget it. But James chapter 5 says, no, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So you and those relationships can be restored. But it's going to take you swallowing your pride and confessing your sin and meaning you were wrong and asking for forgiveness. Maybe the command that you're wrestling with today, the command that doesn't make sense is the command to be baptized. Right? To, to admit that you're in need of God's grace. And sometimes it's like, but why do I need to be baptized? Can't I just kind of maybe just pretend it happened or have a quiet conversation with me and God and get on good terms with God? It's like, well, Jesus commanded us that we would go and we would make disciples by baptizing people. In Romans chapter 6, then when we are baptized, we surrender our lives to Christ in the waters of baptism. And we identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we're fully in, in, immersed in the waters because all of us, our whole body, our whole mind, our whole emotions, everything is corrupted by sin and needs to be restored again. So if you've never made that decision to surrender your life to Christ in the waters of baptism, maybe that's your next step. Maybe that's the command that really just doesn't make sense to you right now, but God's saying, trust me. Trust me. Surrender everything to me. So whatever it is, Whatever this, this, this command that God is calling you to take, even though it doesn't make sense, maybe it's to invite a friend to church, you're like, there's no way they would ever come to church. Maybe God's saying, no, do it. Take a step of faith. 
I know it doesn't make sense, but go invite them. Keep praying for that son. Keep praying for that daughter. It just feels like they don't want to have anything to do with God. Don't give up. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not get tired of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. So whatever that next step is, whatever command that God is calling you to take, just trust him. Follow his word, knowing that he is your heavenly father. Who knows what is best for you and wants what is best for you. Let me pray. Ask him to speak to us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. God, it did not make sense for him to come and die. But that was your command. And he was obedient, God. And so we are thankful for that. We are thankful that he would take our place, that he would take our punishment so that we can be forgiven. We can extend that forgiveness to others so we can rest in your love, so we can be generous. But God, I know that our sin just oftentimes prevents us from taking the steps of faith that you want us to take, God. So when it doesn't make sense, God, give us the courage to follow you in the obedience. God, we love you. We thank you and we pray all of this in your son's precious and holy name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.